Yeah, I'm gonna be real here. A few decent performances, especially by McCoy and Spock, really salvage what otherwise would be a one-off episode. As is, this still, for me, qualifies a bit as a two-off episode. Part of that is because of the behind-the-scenes thing. No, I'm kidding. Actually, it has nothing to do with the behind-the-scenes thing, because I'm not even sure what's going on right now. So here's the catch. I've mentioned several times that it's hard to get exact information on the behind-the-scenes from TOS. Just like looking into just about any other real-life history, it's a lot of, well, maybe, kind of, they said this, but they also say this. Do the best you can, right? As, as I mentioned, quoting uh, other historians, you try to triangulate onto the truth. I should be triangulate onto the truth. As best as we're able. I do know that this is the episode where John Meredith Lucas first really showed up. But to my knowledge, he was still not directly involved until next episode. But the fact that he was already pulled on set during the making of this episode means this is the point at which he was... Um, Kuhn was effectively replaced at this point, And now John Meredith Lucas was his replacement. That's also interesting, though, because as I've mentioned before, Kuhn has mentioned, or rather a friend of Kuhn mentioned that Kuhn quit because he was tired and worn out and, and burnt out of all the work he was putting into the show. We also know Roddenberry wasn't happy with him at the time, probably because of the other frustrations of the time. You know how it is. You know, it's, it's harder to think clearly when you're irritable and frustrated, and then later on you're like, God, what was my problem? So, you know, I'm, not, I'm actually not dissing Roddenberry on this one point. Uh, i got other things to diss him for. <clears throat> But looking at this from that perspective, it looks like Kuhn hadn't actually quit yet, except he totally had. It's just the work he put in wouldn't actually go into production until later. This is also ignoring the stuff he'd write under his pen name. I'm not even talking that, because that was clearly after he bowed out of the show and then was roped back in by contract. I'll talk about that when we get there. So this was an episode written by Kuhn and Roddenberry. And we will see other episodes written by Kuhn and, and that Kuhn put worked into. But like I said, this is probably his last episode and his last real involvement in being, well, in being the frontliner for the show alongside Justman. So, this is a fun one to talk about. I'll talk more about John Meredith Lucas later, and I need to do more research on the season three thing. Because at about this point, historically, when they were making this, is roughly when it was becoming more and more clear, or was already clear. See, the problem is hammering down dates is such a thing when it comes to this. Somewhere around this point in history is when they knew that the show was getting canceled. Because remember, season three wasn't a thing originally. Now, I need to look, I need to do more of a deep dive into the season three renewal thing because there's been some misinformation and this vague information about that. So I don't want to cover that in detail yet. But I do think it's relevant for the making of this episode because John Meredith Lucas has been quoted many times as saying that when he came onto the set for this episode, everyone is irritable and grumpy and people were having problems. And he mentions that as if this was a big stressful situation and, and just a terrible production and he had to, you know, write, write the rudder kind of a thing. But from my own analysis, and this is just speculation, but based on what we know, I think it's more likely that between the fact that Kuhn was leaving and Kuhn was a very beloved figure on the set, and there's a reason Shatner in particular has gone so far out of his way for so many years to praise the man, but he was a beloved figure and he's leaving. And the show was facing cancellation, and they were struggling to make the show at all because of the budget issues I've already mentioned, which will, of course, get worse in Season 3, but that's in the future. Point being, budget issues, 
frustration, lack of, you know, losing one of the main members of, of the production staff, and probably being canceled. In my opinion, that's a pretty stressful environment. It would make a lot of sense for why everyone was just kind of at this point in history. I think this is also part of the why there seems to be a disconnect between accounts, because some people say it was horrible at the time, and yet those same people who will, will say in later interviews that it was awesome, and that you know this is some of the best of track, and this is a great time, and blah, blah, blah. I think that distance allows them to no remove themselves from the stressful environment and look at it with a cleaner picture, that historical perspective thing, which is something I'm pretty big on in general. All of that's just my speculation and supposition. I don't know. But either way, Kuhn is gone. Sadness. I will still be mentioning him because he, he's, he hasn't stopped you know, being relevant to Trek. But he is no longer you know, a person who is going to be on the set every day with Trek. Yay. I mentioned Kuhn and Rodberry wrote this. Let me, let me be more clear about that. Kuhn put this together and Rodberry rewrote it and was rewriting it up until the episode was still being produced. As in the day they would shoot... He, uh, the director, which was Senensky in this case, I mentioned he would pick up a script that was f the shooting script for that day that nobody had actually had access to before because it was just finished. That's that's how late into this. Now, if you remember, that happened with Shore Leave too, and the same exact problem is here. A lot of this script. This is why I say this is a two-off episode. There's some great performances by Kelly and Nimoy, which absolutely elevates the episode tremendously. There's some, there's a couple cool ideas, and there's some smart elements to this episode, which do help buoy it tremendously, I do think. However, this is still a two-off episode for me, because the rest of the script is just kind of, it's a first draft script, right? And it has all the problems you'd imagine from that, including a whole lot of repetition. So, we start off the episode, and it starts off in a smart way. Uh, we found some wreckage that's been drifting of the ship, okay? And we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on with that exactly. And it turns out it's, it's drifted from this planet, which is right over there, and we'll be there in seconds. Credit for the logic of that. A wreck that's been drifting for six years would take seconds to traverse that distance at any kind of, of FTL speed. So that actually makes perfect sense. I know that's such a minor thing. It's so tiny. But little tit touches like that are the kind of things I tend to appreciate when it comes to my fiction. Not just science, but fantasy as well. When you bother to have tiny little bits of sense-making, it elevates the work for me because I am pulled into the work rather than pushed out of it. The wallpaper is better. One of you will get that. If, assuming he's even watching this, he's probably not, because he hasn't watched TOS. So then we find out about Captain Merrick, who Kirk knows about, of course, because apparently Kirk knew everybody. Actually, I'm not really making fun there. It makes perfect sense, especially in this era, that all the captains pretty much know each other. Why wouldn't they? How many ships are there in the Starfleet right now? How, uh, let me rewind that a second. How many major ships? How many actual, cap, what I would call capital ships, although I know they don't really have such a terminology in Star Trek, especially this era. They have, what, 13 Constitution classes? I bet Kirk knows every single one of those captains. So that actually makes perfect sense. Then, then hang on, I got another piece of evidence here. Then you add in the effects, you remember Court Martial? The service and the fact that there's the kind of internecine politics thing, and the fact that it's kind of an elitist political club. Of course, everyone knows everyone else, but they're all part of the same party. I, I don't want to get too too into this because I already talked about this in court martial, but I really do feel like the captains of the Starfleet in this era were basically all a part of the same political party within the Federation. It's not official. 
It's not like they have a slogan and a website and a stupid mug you can buy for way too, money, too much money. No, I, it's just they are all kind of part of the same clique. And so they all kind of got each other's backs and they all kind of operate as one political entity within the Federation. Think about it. Honestly, this could probably be uh, mentioned in future Trek as well. It's just, in more modern Trek, there's so many more ships and so many more captains, under the, under the factor of thousands more, that at that point it just becomes slightly more meaningless and far more of a, well, you're a captain, so you get you know, veneration for being a captain, rather than being someone that you probably know personally. Just food for thought. Although Picard was pretty well connected, too, now that I'm remembering. But then again, he'd been a captain for, what, 20 years? So then we get the Prime Directive. Yay! Okay, that's that's great. That's wonderful. It's a PD episode, my favorite. Oh, God, kill me. <sighs> One of these days we'll stop talking about the Prime Directive on this show. Not anytime soon. <clears throat> so, because it's going to keep coming up. It's, it's not that I want to. It really isn't. I feel like I've said everything I need to say about the Prime Directive at this point. So let's just cover this in brief. This is a first. This is the first usage of the Prime Directive. No, really. If you remember, in both previous cases, it was the Directive of Non-Interference or the Prime Directive of Non-Interference. Now it's the Prime Directive, and it's even listed out in a awkward and ham-fisted thing of, uh, of, of exposition. <clears throat> First draft script. No identification of self or mission. No interference with social development of planet. No references to space or the fact that there are other worlds or more advanced civilizations. Now, because it, it, it is relevant to this episode, I'm going to go and mention that that sounds like a reasonable goal. Um, if that's where you're going, maybe you should do a few more scans before you wildly beam down in a Starfleet uniform with a phaser and a communicator. Just a thought. I hate to make this point, but even Enterprise, which didn't have a Prime Directive, used more elements of trying to blend in in Season 1, I might add, than they do here in TOS. And don't tell me they can't have the outfits. First of all, one of the reasons to have these Earth-like planets, by the way, here we have another Earth-like planet, Hodkin's Law, etc. We're walking, we're walking. So, it, part of the point of using these old sets for these, these, these Earth-like planets is to keep the budget down. As I've said before, I'm in favor of that, uh, except for the Earth-like planet thing. I'm in favor of the keep the budget down by using set things, and I've been pointing out good ways to do it. This is not a good way to do it. This is stupid. They even speak English, for God's sakes. <sighs> Moving on. Moving on. So, you know, you know the cloud effect? This isn't that. <clears throat> this is just a really ridiculous premise and a mediocre to subpar episode, in my opinion, of course. <sighs> they wanted to keep the... put them in outfits. We've seen Kirk and crew wear, you know, normal everyday 60s outfits before in multiple episodes. It's not like you don't have the uniforms or the, the suits on the set to put the actors in. Anyways, whatever. It, it, I guess it wouldn't help here because they wear different clothing, but maybe you should do a little bit more research first before you just decide to beam down all willy-nilly. Maybe you should do some scans from orbit first. I don't know. I'm just thinking outside the box here. If you really care so much about this Prime Directive, up to including the ability to sacrifice yourself and your crew for the sake of this Directive of Non-Interference, maybe you should put some actual work into it rather than just flinging yourself down. Also, to be perfectly blunt, the Prime Directive basically stops applying the moment the locals are already aware of you because the, the 
the uh, word. I can't think of the word. Oh my god, total brain death. Infection? I don't know. We're going to go with infection. That is not the word I'm thinking of. The infection has already happened, right? At this point, knowledge and word of who and what you are has already reached several ears, including, obviously, the proconsul, but also his guard that he freely speaks around, and several slaves. So the mere fact that you're from space is something that you can freely interact with around them. Now it's about mitigating the damage, right? Okay, you know, the, 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 the cover's blown for this village. The cover's blown for this person. The cover's blown for this area. So let's operate freely and use our tools freely here and try to deal with the situation. Now, credit to the episode. I actually thought the whole Prime Directive thing was going to be used as a method to, you know, prevent them from getting out. It was going to be a dilemma of the week, which was going to irritate the crap out of me. But actually, no, the, the dilemma of the week is the fact that the other guys have machine guns and they're going to shoot us if we try to ask for a beam out. And you can't beam out with the communicator. I mean, that would be nonsense. It's not like you can reach out to a planet and scan an individual and then beam them up regardless of the fact that they may or may not have a communicator. That would be nonsense. Remember, that's already established by now. So that's, that's free game for me to make fun of. Anyways. I, you know what, I, while I'm complaining, can I add one more thing here? I really don't like this episode, by the way, if it's not obvious. It's just, it's not an episode I can call actively bad. Not as bad as other episodes. There's this bit where Kirk is like, hey, Scotty, get a fix on us. And the guards come in and threaten to shoot him. So he's like, okay. Well, that sucks. Then he says, code green, everything out. Now, first of all, I love this. No, I do. The fact that they have codes which sound innocuous which nevertheless have hidden meanings, is exactly the kind of thing there should be. Some of my D&D players actually have made fun of me for insisting on code words sometime. But they are invaluable. Being able to communicate something without to one person without communicating, communicating it to others is an invaluable tool. Especially when you consider the fact that you have no idea what kind of circumstances you're going to find yourself in when you beam down to a random planet of the week, right? So that code green thing is brilliant. We're in trouble. Don't interfere. Code green. Right? Everything's fine. And it sounds like everything's fine to everyone else. Which brings up my point. Why don't they have a beam me out when you get a chance? We know that if you shoot them while they've started beaming, they're fine. That's demonstrated in this episode. Because they start unloading in the jail cell when they're beaming out. So... Why is it exactly that they can't just, you know, do the stealth beam call, you know, get us the heck out of Dodge immediately? And they could have beamed out in that room because there's no contamination. That was the word I was trying to think of earlier. There's no contamination at this point. Infection. God. Because, again, everyone present already knows. So there's no additional contamination. They get out. Problem solved. Now, I know that would mean there would be no episode, but... Again, that goes back to the idea I've talked about many times, where if the only method you have for your heroes to be challenged is for them to deliberately and without cause not use the tools at their disposal, that's not good writing. Anywho. So everyone speaks English. 
to my knowledge, this is the very first time they've specifically called out that a native species actually speaks English rather than the universal translator thing, which which has barely been a thing. Like they, They've kind of vaguely mentioned the universal translator a few times, but this is the first time they flat out call out, wow, they're speaking English, huh? Now that's actually, near as I can tell, this is supposition, near as I can tell, that is specifically in order to make the sun-sun parallel, you know, to, to maintain the mystery of what the sun is. That, that's all that's there for. Anyway, so then we do some establishing, and then we do some establishing. They've got 60s culture, they got car, excuse me, they got magazines, they got television, they got gladiatorial games. Okay, cool. We're with it, we're with it. This is when McCoy says a weird line, which has no basis of being in the episode. I'm just weirded out. Why would they have sun worship? When Why would they mimic Rome in every way except for one? Ignoring the eventual twist this goes through, number one, Rome did have sun worshipping. Sol Invictus is all I'm going to say about that. Point number two, the idea that... I love that they're bothered more by the fact that they're copying Earth except in one way than the fact that they're copying Earth in every other way. But as I think I've already mentioned, the parallel Earth's idea is stupid at the baseline, so let, let's just move on. So then they get captured... Actually, sorry, they got captured earlier out of nowhere by people with guns. Then later they get captured out of nowhere by people with guns. Exciting. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> this then leads to the idea of the institution of slavery. Now, I want to stress this, because what happens in this scene is they talk about uh, how slavery works, and then Spock says, fascinating, and then he repeats the exact same facts right back to them. I wanted to give a specific example of what I mean by Roddenberry's tendency towards repetition in his writing. Because that scene is a perfect example of it. It's minor, but it's continuous. You see that kind of repetition all over the place in some of the scripts he's worked on. I've already mentioned this several times before. This is a good example of it. And I guess now we have to talk about how messed up the very idea of an institution of slavery is, don't we? <sighs> I don't want to talk about this on the internet. Okay, okay. Slavery is actually a bit of a broad word. Let's start with that, because there's quite a few different things that classify under the same bracket. Usually when I use the word slavery, I specifically refer to chattel slavery, which is messed up, wrong, and awful. And one of the, I'd say like the third or fourth worst thing that exists in human existence, chattel slavery, is just every kind of messed up, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. I'm putting it so far down on the list, but damn. This is not chattel slavery. Uh, what this is, is closer to serfdom, which itself has variable levels of acceptability and usage historically. But the point is, the, the slaves got more and more rights, rights and more and more privileges and were taken care of better over time to the point where slavery became an acceptable job title. I, I'm not going to make a parallel to real life or wage slaving. I'm not going to do it. My point is this whole thing is kind of horrifying because it's entirely within reason that there would be a group of people, not everyone, but a group of people, especially amongst aliens who don't have the same culture and identities that we do, who would be totally cool with being slaves as long as they were taken care of. The gilded cage problem. That I mean, imagine these people ended up being captured by Norman and his crew instead of the Enterprise crew. They would be like, dude, this is sweet, and they would have just gone right along with it. Why wouldn't they? You get the point? On the other hand, of course, it's entirely possible that that's not necessarily true because they mentioned that the, you know, they, they talk several times about how the revolts are basically gone. 
But then in the same script, they also mentioned that there has been rebellion and people trying to act out for, you know, hundreds of years. If They're not even sure of the exact duration of exactly how long this has been happening. Which is further emphasized by the video clip at the very beginning that Uhura brings up. Um, <clears throat> and I quote, We're not sure why well-treated, well-protected uh, slaves would try to rebel. What I'm trying to say is that, despite what the episode tries to posit, I feel that the slavery institution is not as uniform and docile as they otherwise indicate. Or, in short, that there are a group of people who are cool with it, and then there's everyone else. <laughs> this also leads to Merrick showing up. And Merrick, you notice Merrick is shown almost universally as worse than Claudius, even though Claudius is actually... Is it Claudius or Claudius? I wrote it down because I kept having issue with his name while I was watching the episode. It is Claudius. Um, it, it, even though Claudius is the villain of the episode, Claudius is respectful and polite and affable and, and basically gives the crew every possibility to escape. In fact, if he wasn't so nice, they would have probably died, uh, I'd say, at least three times. So that's cute. Whereas Merrick is just this sniveling little worm, right? And I want to stress that, okay? Because I feel like that's, that's something we all do when we write. All of us. Every single one of us. When we write, we put a little bit of ourselves into our writing. A little bit of our opinions, our perspectives, our ideals. Things that we believe in. We tend to shade things and slant things. Even if we don't mean to. Right? Like, obviously there's a message piece. But I don't mean that. I mean just the tone kind of sh is shifted versus, based on the writer. Now this is... I don't have hard evidence of this. But this is just something I believe based on what I've seen and what I myself have written and what I've read of other people writing. So the reason I bring all that up is because Merrick is a pathetic and worthless worm who mistreated his people and decided to betray them. And Claudius is a noble and, and strong person who believes in decency and honor. One of these men is proconsul, the other's first citizen. The proconsul is the one who arranges gladiatorial games and violence and death and blood and slavery, and the other one is one who accepted all that for the sake of surviving. Which one of these people is worse? Now, you can decide whichever one you want there. The reason I phrase it that way is to make it clear that it's not as slanted as the episode shows it, because the episode makes it really lean towards the fact that Merrick is a worse person. In fact, he's a worse person right up until his big redemption scene, because he's the one who needs the redemption scene, because he's worse, and of course, redemption equals death, so he dies immediately after he ends up saving the crew. Cute. This also leads to uh, an interesting factoid. Oh, I meant to look this up. I didn't look this up. I'm so stupid. I'll look it up live on camera. Very exciting stuff. I'm going to do it on my phone just so you don't hear the, hear the typing, because I know you hate the typing on my keyboard, because it's this really loud uh, thing. So at one point, Spock mentions how many deaths have happening, what he's talking about, you know, the comparisons of this world and how this world is clearly better than Earth, right? He mentions 37 million people died in World War III. Now, that is a huge number. That is a lot of people. But he mentions two other figures, which I didn't write down because they're wrong. Uh, in World War One, there were roughly, um, yeah, let's go with 40 million deaths. Let's just go with that figure. This is from the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. 
It's the Robert Schumann uh, European Center, I, I think is how that's supposed to be said. So that's that figure. Probably not accurate, but hey, you know, just off the top of my head. Let's pull up World War II. Okay, here we go. World War II casualties has its own page and everything. Uh, yeah, so in World War II casualties, closer to 85 million people. Maybe World War III was less devastating? No, no, the point is they didn't look it up. They, and in the interest of fairness, in the late 60s, they might not have even known of the, the casualty list. Remember, we are still uncovering new things and still studying the history of, of, our, of the century ago. Now, we're still looking into this stuff. So it's entirely possible they didn't have the figures. I'm not going to hold that against them. What I am going to posit is the idea, eyebrow-raising though it may be, of one of two possibilities. Either... Their Great War in World War II was actually less devastating than ours, you know, because it's a different timeline, a different world, different setting, different everything. Or, here's, an, here's another fun one. Their, uh, their fact-finding for that era was even worse because of the devastation of World War III, and thus they are less familiar with their own history. Now, see, even as I'm saying that, I'm destroying my own argument because they have tons and tons of availability of history from before that time, which you'd think would also be lost. I don't know. I give up. Screw it. It would be interesting if the World War III was actually less devastating to people than one or two, specifically because it was so devastating for, like, the planet. It was, such, it was just, oh, God, okay, we need to stop war immediately kind of a deal, rather than a long, protracted conflict with millions and millions of people on the front lines kind of a deal. Anywho, just food for thought. It's not, a, it's not a score, it's just something I was thinking about while this episode was going, because honestly, I didn't have a lot to think about on this episode. I really didn't. I apologize. What I do like is there's the probably the best part of the episode happens at 30 minutes. Uh, let me take that back. The second best part of the episode happens at 30 minutes. They take out... The, we finally actually see the gladiatorial arena, and it's, it's a set. It's actually a really fake-looking set. But it's brilliant. Because... Their set looks fake, but our set of their set looks great. We've got the person up top, we've got the people in the, 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 the really small stands, we've got the audio where they have the fake audience that isn't even there because there's no actual physical audience, we've got the multiple cameras. That is probably one of the better parts of the episode, and funnily enough, several people also spoke positively about that in interviews, because the satire of television is, is re reasonably spot on, especially 60s television. I don't know how applicable this is now, because television has changed at least two major times to see changes since this episode was made. But apparently everyone believed that this was very spot-on satire for the time, so I'm going to take their word on it. There's also uh, there's a surprisingly good section. I've, I've been talking about the choreography as we've been going through since. Remember, every episode has to have a fight. And so here we are, and we fight, and we fight, and we fight, and we fight. And as they're fighting... Spock's doing pretty good. Like, it's actually a pretty good, engaging fight. And he's he's effectively toying with the other guy. But there's a lot of movement, a lot of good action. Meanwhile, McCoy's just... Uh, and you'll notice both McCoy and, and uh, Flavius are specifically aiming for each other's shields. You know, pong, pong, which is, of course, what you do in play acting when you don't actually want to hurt the other person. But this makes perfect sense, because neither McCoy nor Flavius actually want to hurt each other. So all of that lines up beautifully. I love it. I do. And so this whole sequence is just brilliant. We'll do a special on you. <laughs> I like how that's a threat, by the way. Anyways, this then leads to 
God, this wonderful bit, and I've already kind of talked about this, but, you know, Claudius is like, we don't fear death as you do. We're very comfortable with it. Blah, 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 because we're Roman. I know you're not like this because I've studied Merrick. And he flat out says that I know everything about being a spaceship captain, and I know everything about your people because I've studied him, this one guy, because that's how that works, right? If you study one person, you know their whole society. God, could you imagine? <laughs> trying to... Whew, I, mean, I know we talk about the planet of hats, but at that point, that's the planet of an individual. That's, that's even more severe. But no, the episode is making the point, which I have already made, that Merrick is this sniveling little pathetic worm who immediately capitulated. Do, I do want to mention, by the way, that, that unlike in Taste of Armageddon, where it was treated... Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. Taste of Armageddon, which is one of my favorite episodes... Uh, had this same scenario. Captain and a senior staffer down below, they're being told, beam down your crew to die, otherwise we'll kill you. In both cases, Kirk is just like, sure, buddy, yeah, that's happening. In Taste of Armageddon, they couldn't understand it because they were just running into walls and there was societal stuff and some great performances. Above. Here they don't understand it because they're using Merrick as their example. He capitulated immediately. So obviously Kirk is going to, too. Why, why isn't he capitulating? Why aren't you... You're... Why are you watching this? This is this is a horrible thing. You should be groveling and screaming just like he was. Like whining like a little baby, sobbing like the little pussy girl he is. You, know, you get that vibe. I don't mean that, by the way. But you get that vibe that that's what he means. He even says later on, and I quote, uh, Merrick, leave us. The thoughts of one man to another cannot possibly interest you. So you get a lot of that vibe from Claudius and how he's presented. There's another reason why I think he's a worse person than Merrick, by the way. <clears throat> So, yeah, he comes across as just being a dick about the whole thing. And Kirk is like, nope, nope, I'm cool. There's even this bit where he says, Merrick, what do you think she's doing? Merrick is like, I, 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 I don't know. I'm super indecisive. And Kirk is just like, eh. unyielding, super strong. Kirk is the best person ever. And once again, while I don't give him leeway for it, it's hard to blame Shatner for the ego trip he ends up going on later, isn't it? When episodes like these are going so far out of the way to lift him up to being the Ubermensch. I know I'm using that word wrong. Uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I don't know the word I'm thinking of, so please forgive me. So then Spock rushes over and stuff happens, and blah, blah, blah. From 3840 to 4120 which is an excellent section of the episode, and the best part of the episode uh, by far. What is that? That's two minutes, and it's three minutes dead. That's three minutes dead. McCoy and Spock talk. McCoy, it starts off the usual way. They, they bicker, they fight. It's, it's how they interact. It's how their relationship has basically always been. So they fight, and they bicker, and they push against each other. And Spock does his usual thing, and McCoy does his usual thing. And after a bit, McCoy drops it for a second. I think this may be the second time in the entire show McCoy has dropped the pretense for a second. The other time was in a muck time. You remember that? And he drops it completely, shoves Spock up against the wall and says, I get it. You're not afraid of dying. You're afraid of living. You're afraid of losing that control. And remember, Spock's pride is his, his need to be the kind of person that he is is something that's already established at this point in the show. By the way, I give full credit for this scene to Mr. Kuhn because this has his fingerprints all over it. I'm just saying. Um, he and the actors. I'm sorry, I should also give credit to the actors because they did a great job with this too. You know, you're, 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 you're afraid to let slip. You don't 
actually know what you do with an honest-to-goodness feeling. You don't know how you'd cope with that. You never have. And we get this insight into Spock's character, which, in fairness, we've already had back in... Uh, not sure, leave the other one. Uh, this side of paradise. We've already had this insight into this side of paradise. And so it's the, same, it's the same window, it's the same peek into Spock underneath the veneer. The idea of someone who is actually legitimately afraid of feeling. The, the total lack of experience, the total lack of how to deal with that. Because, remember, what he's doing is not coping. Well, let me rephrase that. What he's doing is... What's a good word? Because every word I'm coming up with just sounds like coping. There's handling, processing. He's not working through it. He's working against it. That's how I want to phrase that. This, this uh, just trust me from experience. I know exactly what this feels like. Because there's some things you just can't work through, right? You can't face it head on. It's it's just too terrible. Either because it's something you don't know how to process, or it's it's wonderful, or it's beautiful, or it's sad, or it's tragic, or it's painful, or whatever. It could be anywhere on the spectrum, good to bad. You just lock it down and move it away, and it's over there, and that's how you cope. You're not actually, you know, working through it. You're working against it, preventing it from being a part of your life. And that's what Spock does. Now, this is a key distinction to what most Vulcans do, because most Vulcans are supposed to be trained and disciplined in managing and controlling their emotions, not completely locking their emotions away. But this is what Spock does, partially because of his heritage, partially because of his father, partially because of his pride, partially because of his fear. We even see this in Star Trek The Motion Picture, if you remember. He was going through the, I forget what it's called, which is actually referenced over on Enterprise as well. And he ends up not because of the events of the, of the movie, but that is the path Spock was on. The purging of emotion rather than the managing of emotion. It's an interesting distinction and a wonderful character piece. And Nimoy plays it perfectly. He doesn't even have any lines. He just acts with his face and his body as he's staring. And you see the truth of it in his eyes as McCoy's talking. And finally he turns to McCoy and he just reestablishes the veneer. But none of the bite is in his words anymore as he says with this gravely tone, Really, Doctor? McCoy's response, seeing right through it, I know, I'm worried about Jim too. Beautiful scene. Beautiful scene. Very, very... There's a reason why this isn't a lamentation or a one-off. That scene is gold and absolutely enjoyable. There's, there's some other good stuff, too. Don't mistake me. It's just the script suffers, which then leads, of course, to the very next scene, which is um, Kirk having sex with a slave girl. There's no reason for this scene to, to exist whatsoever, by the way. There's nothing there for Kirk. There's nothing there to talk about slavery. The character herself is a non-character. In fact, this is one of her only acting credits. I looked it up. She was basically brought in to be slave girl number 17. Or two, actually. There is no reason for that scene to exist. I, I hate to say that, but it serves no purpose for the script other than, hey, sex. I mean, I like sex too, but you, you got to have something a little bit more there other than, you know... James T. Kirk decides to take advantage of a sex slave. I cannot be the only person who has a problem with that. In the interest of fairness, we don't know if they actually have sex. We get a fade to black after embracing. Whatever. 
Of course, this then leads to the comment I mentioned earlier, and by the way, that's totally written by Roddenberry, because the next thing, which is also written by Roddenberry totally, you know, the thoughts of a, a one man to another cannot possibly interest you, he leaves, and he flat out admits, I wanted you to have one last night as a man, that's why I gave you my sex slave. I, just, just phrasing it the way it is, that's all I'm saying. You can take whatever away from this you want, okay? Then they go off, and then they fight, and then they, they don't fight, and they try to escape, and Flavius dies. That actually really sucks. He was one of the better guest stars in the episode. And then they do this big escape, and then Merrick redeems himself, and then dies, and they get out. And they didn't violate the Prime Directive. I'm not even talking about the coda. I'm not touching that with a ten-foot pole. <laughs> let's Let's just walk on from that. Because then the episode ends... You know, I've been thinking about which episode is the worst uh, Parallel Earth episode. So we've got Miri, we've got uh, Bread and Circuses, we've got the upcoming Nazi episode, and we've got Omega Glory. I think that's all of them? I should look up all of them at some point. But which one do you think is the worst of these? So far, I would probably give it to Miri, to be completely blunt. Miri was just the whole way through. I have a feeling I know which one I'm going to list as worst when we get there. But whatever. I will see you guys next time for something that hopefully is not another Parallel Earths episode. Whew.